notes. I just put notes everywhere. It's like getting things done, except I never look at them again. Um, and it's so freeing. Hey, Zach. Hey, Liz. I have more imitation cream cheese. Ooh. It is a brand called Tofuti. It's soy-based, as you can tell by the name. Uh-huh. Uh, no dairy, no other stuff. Don't really care. Mm-hmm. It's dairy-free cream cheese. I got it spread on this bagel. We're going to jump right into it. Um, it spreads more like butter, like cold butter, than cream cheese. Okay. Which is to say, it takes some effort. <laughs> um, I have not tried it yet. Um, other than the consistency, which is, I mean, not terribly off. I think it's within the margin of cream cream cheese. Um, otherwise, it looks like, you, mm-hmm. I think my exposure is a little high for that, but. Um, <laughs> it looks cream cheesy. Yeah. It, so I'm going to take a bite and we're going to see how it is. All right. I'm kind of nervous about it being soy because um, at least with like oat or almond like you get like an inherent nutty flavor mm-hmm. and like soy i feel like it's kind of hit or miss on the flavoring because like soy itself does not have much flavor right yeah all right i'm stalling here we go okay first bite was interesting it's sweet it's very sweet I'm going to take another bite. Mm-hmm. Sweet is not a, a term that I would normally associate with cream cheese unless it's flavored cream cheese. I agree. I think you're usually going for more of a savory kind of thing, mm-hmm. which I think there is some savory in there. The consistency, once it's actually in your mouth, that's quite good. I think that it matches cream cheese per- extremely well. Ooh. Um... It's got a little weirdness in terms of flavor. I can't quite like pin it down. It tastes like this or like that, but mm-hmm. it tastes, you can tell it's imitation, which is fine. That's not a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. This is way better than I expected, to be honest. Super. Does it get in the range of cheese? I think if someone gave me a pre- spread bagel with this cream cheese on top i would not question whether it was uh dairy based i think i would assume it was okay that's that's good that's high praise okay let me i have been fighting with i don't have like a csv software and so we're just going to use numbers and it's going to complain so much mm-hmm. okay so this was vegan cream cheese from tof tofuddy yeah it's in the agenda tofuddy 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 you probably get the tofu in there and then you have to fit the rest of it around that makes sense soy I think that is true in the name and in the product. 
Oh, and one more thing mm-hmm. that should be noted. Last time I did, was it an oat-based cream cheese? Almond-based. Almond-based. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but I forgot to mention that time that it was significantly more expensive than a comparable size of dairy uh, cream cheese. Oh. Uh, whereas the tofuti is not. I think it's uh, significantly cheaper in terms of um, for imitation cream cheese. Okay, that's that's good. Yeah. How many how many book recommendations do you give this? Oh, okay. Cream cheese. Uh, hmm. Okay, here's my thinking. One book me- book recommendation is good because it's not too much of a commitment and it's pretty easy to just be like, "Oh, I forgot." And I cuz if you don't want to read it. Mhm. Two, I think that's like a number of books you can still, or like, that is an amount of information that you can keep in your head. But once you get into three book recommendations from the same person in like a sitting, then you start having to write them down to appear to want to read them. Mm. So definitely above three is going to be where it starts going down. I think if you know someone really well, and you know what they like in books, then I think two books is a good amount of books. If you don't know them that well, one book would be a good amount of books. Mm -hmm. I would give this one book recommendation. I think it is more about the, for lack of a better word, the style than the actual execution of the cream cheese. Okay. It It is a flavor. And I am enjoying that flavor, not quite as much as I enjoy the dairy-based one. But I think a different person could like this more than dairy ice, uh, dairy cream cheese. All right. I respect that. I think it's interesting that we can say, you know, whatever, tofu-based cream cheese. And there's very little concern about that. Say tofu-based milk and everybody loses their minds. <laughs> To be totally fair, I was concerned. I was like, there's no way this is going to be good. <laughs> um, but I, I I, don't know. If you like this kind of thing, I'd give it a shot if you don't want to be consuming as much dairy. Yeah. I'm I'm more thinking I, it is wild that it works with tofu, but I'm, I can make that make sense. Um, the thing that I'm thinking is that you can say cream cheese, and even though it is not made of cream or cheese the the dairy lobby is not up in arms about it in the way that they are about milk that's a good point i guess we see where their values truly lie speaking of uh there's one company that does not want to draw the ire of the milk world um and that company that brave company (laughs) is malk uh we've spoken about malk before (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, but today I was in Whole Foods running some errands on my way home to record this podcast, and I uh, discovered that there is such a thing as oat milk. Um, I believe what we tried before was almond milk. That sounds right. 
Uh, but now we also have some oat milk to try. So I'm going to give that a go, All see right. what I think of it. Um, it's, it says to shake well, so I'm shaking it well. No icky fillers, gums, or anything fake. It's gum-free. There is a longer list of things that are not in this drink than the list of things that are. Um, which is one of those ways that you can tell what somebody values. It's a good thing they're not trying to pass this off as milk. <laughs> um, I think you can go one of two ways. You can go, this is a drink that is in the vicinity of milk um, that is based on plants. And that's one of the options. And the other option is, this is a thing that is not dairy. Um, maybe it's vegan. Maybe it's just lactose-free, right? Whatever your particular priorities are that you're looking for from an uh, alternative milk. But we got it as close as we knew how to milk. Um, and I think... Most of the time, that's what I'm looking for. That's the category I'm more interested in is we are approaching milk because milk sits at the like a nice um, space in the world of flavor and sweetness, particularly as a flavor that I think a lot of um, this is a thing approaching milk, but that is not trying to be milk. Um, misses is the sweetness. Mm. Um, and so... This Malk is definitely not shooting for the latter. It's definitely shooting for the former, which is this is in the vicinity of milk, um, and it's made with plants. All right. And I don't love it, but I think with that here, I'm going to give it another couple sips and, and see what mm -hmm. I think. It's got a very interesting property, which is that it's gritty, but it's only gritty on the back of my throat. If I try and <laughs> sense that grit with my tongue, I don't feel it. Um, that sounds so it's bad. Texture-wise, it's pretty good until it gets to the back of your throat. Um, like, it's pretty smooth. It's pretty, I don't know, the, the liquid consistency that you expect milk to be. Okay. That's good. But it is definitely um, made with oat. You can kind of feel the oat, and you can definitely taste the oat. Um. And if I rem remember incorrectly, uh, almond milk has a similar, you can definitely feel the almond, and I'm pretty sure you could taste the almond as well. Almond is just a flavor that is less distinct. Right, right. Okay. Can we get a rating in terms of what what Christmas gift would you give this milk? Oh. Now, this is an interesting year. I have not getting, gotten very many Christmas gifts for folks who I'm not particularly close with. So given that context, I don't think I would even get this milk a gift. Um, but if it were like a Secret Santa kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, and I was just going to get this milk a gift because that was the, the assigned Secret Santa ordeal, um, I think like a gift basket... Like, uh, you know, some dried fruits and, like, some chocolate and some, like, Christmassy decoration-looking things, a cookie or two, but, like, shrink-wrapped, you know? Yeah. Because um, I don't think it's bad. It's just not for me. All right. Wonderful. 
There you have it, Jared. So if I were getting um, oat milk, if I were getting oat milk uh, Christmas gift and bringing it to a Secret Santa kind of event, maybe um, I, we would be going to that Secret Santa kind of event somewhere that had a TV. And a lot of times if you're having a, a Christmas party kind of thing and you have a TV and you're like, let's utilize this TV for the sake of the Christmas party, what you're going to put up on the TV is a Yule log. Um, just a nice relaxing view of a fire burning mm -hmm. um, on this Yule log. That's a really important kind of log this time of year um, in mid-December, mid to late December 2021. Uh, that's one important log that you might be thinking about. But another important kind of log that you might be thinking about is Log4j. Zach, uh, I don't know anything about this. Oh, delightful. Okay. Hi, Jared. I... I th I heard a thing about a security breach on Twitter, and then uh, I had to think about it a little bit for work, but not too deeply. And then um, I decided, you know what I'm going to do with my weekend is learn too much about this. As is our way. <laughs> so here we go. Time for... Zach, to explain what's going on when you hear about Log4j exploits or Log4Shell is the particular name of this exploit um, that got discovered. Super high level, there is this library called Log4j, um, L-O-G, the numeral 4, and then the, the letter J, and it is a logging library for Java, and uh, the most recent version has a particular kind of behavior that when you use it in what is technically the wrong way, but is not like checked, right? It's not going like, oh, I see that this is the wrong way. Um, it is a way that is really easy to make this mistake and do it the wrong way. When you're doing this thing the wrong way, it's really, really easy for somebody to run whatever code they want on your computer or the computer that runs uh, whatever Java software has this vulnerability, which is most of it. That's bad. That's yeah. really bad. That's um, known as a remote code execution exploit. Um, that Using this, you can get whatever code you want that's just sitting on your server. Um, you can take that and put it on somebody else's server. And if you, you choose the right code to put on their server, you can really mess them up. So that's the super high level. Um, now I'm going to try and dig into it a little bit in a way that Jared can understand. So Liz, I would like you to ask questions like you're Liz and also ask questions like you're Jared. Okay, cool. Hey Liz, how much do you think about logging libraries? Day-to-day, uh, -day, almost none. I think uh, logging is not something that i've like invested a great deal of my like programming experience into mm -hmm. mostly i use it for debugging um and you certainly don't need a library for that yeah uh, uh, uh debugging while in development i should say right and in that sense you're saying mostly like you print out we got here or here is the value kind of things yeah that sort of thing yeah, so that is like 
pretty rudimentary logging. Um, mm-hmm. So the whole idea with logging is that when you write a program, especially a big program, right, like a Google level program or, a, you know, most software company level program, something that's bigger than a single person can keep in their head. Right. Um, it's doing a bunch of stuff. And all of that stuff is just step-by-step instructions. It's going, okay, we go here and then we do this and then we add these two numbers up and then that helps us make a decision two steps down the line kind of thing. Um, Or at a very high level, we're going to load the web page for the user. Those are two levels at which you can think about programming. A lot of times when that's happening, it's not happening in a local environment where you can debug it. Um, It's not happening where you can just say, okay, tell me exactly right now what's happening. Why did you just draw that window twice as big as it's supposed to be or whatever? Um, Mm -hmm. You can't like back solve that um, as easily, especially if it's on somebody else's computer. So when a program is running, it usually does a bunch of steps to produce a single output. Um, So this, I'm just going to like super high level sketch something like an ad bidding routine. So when Google ads serves you an ad, um, you send some information to a Google server, they process that, and then they send you back an ad. And the processing that could probably be broken down into a couple of steps. Um, It uses that information that you just sent them to identify you. It takes that identifying information and the fact about how big the space is, and it selects from a big list of potential bids for that ad space. Um, It ranks those bids in some way to determine which one is going to pay the highest. Um, It selects the content for that bid. It sends that information back to you, and probably even it goes somewhere in the table and says, they bid and they won this one time, and so we need to charge them for that. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was also a pretty high level description because when I say it pulls potential bids for that ad space, um, that includes, we've got to decide what database we need to connect to. We need to connect to that database. We need to format a request that says, send me all of the bids with this characteristic and that characteristic and that characteristic. Uh, We need to send that request to the database. We need to sit around and wait until we receive the response as a big block of unstructured data. We need to structure that data. And then we can continue doing whatever we want to with the structured data. Right, right. Um, There's a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps. And if you're looking at that from the outside, um, and you can say, okay, you sent over some information about you and about the the screen size. um, And the output was an ad. And it shouldn't have been this ad. Why was it that ad? Something went wrong. But if that's not running in a place where you can get at it and debug it directly, you still want to know vaguely what happened um and what part of the process had the problem so that you can start trying to fix it and it would be really overwhelming if you try and keep track of every single thing you do okay we determine the database to connect to we connected to the database we formatted a request um we sent that request we waited exactly this many seconds we received the response maybe some of that information is useful maybe you do want to know um how long you waited But the fact that you determined a database to connect to is just kind of standard behavior. Nothing's going to go wrong there. Whatever. Right. And so logging libraries are built up to help solve this problem of keeping track of information at what level of detail. Um, 
when you need to know a particular thing, um, and this is in advance, you usually will say, okay, I want to know how long it takes to get the data back from the database, and I want to know what number of responses we get back from the database, um, mm-hmm. and then I want to know the top three ranked ones, even though we're only sending back the top number one ranked result, and those are the things that I'm going to log. Yeah, things like, these are some things that are likely to break. If like if I had to guess what was going to break, these are going to be the things that break, not adding two numbers together, right? not formatting a string. And that extra information, you know, the top three can be helpful in the debugging process, mm-hmm. which I, I suppose would be kind of helpful to mention that like that can be really difficult in a production <laughs> environment. Yeah. Like if you control all the variables, of course, everything's going to go right. But if you have a billion users like Google, then you are going to have some edge cases that you didn't think of. Right. And especially because this is software that no single person can keep in their head, knowing exactly what happened and exactly what's supposed to happen at every single step um, is just not possible. You need Mm -hmm. to kind of abstract it for a little bit. So when you're thinking about a logging library, the most important things you want to consider are what level of detail you're logging at, what data you allow out when you do, um, and where you're saving that information. You could save it to a database or a file or to a particular, you know, we're going to just store our, all of our logs in this format and they're going to go here so it's easier to search, whatever. Um, and each logging library chooses to handle managing each of those condi- considerations in different ways. So I was saying maybe we want to log how many bids we got back. We selected n potential bids. That means that we need a way to determine what n is, what the number of bids is, and fit that into the log in such a way that it can get written out. So now we just say selected three potential bids. But next time it comes through and we select 10, um, that also gets logged out. And so you need the logging library to be aware of things outside of itself so that it can capture those and then write those to the log. Right. That's the things you want to think about when you think about a logging library. Specifically, Log4j is a Java logging library from the Apache Software Foundation. Um, Java runs on more than 5.5 billion devices. Um and log4j has a syntax for bringing values in from outside. Um, it's a, you say whatever, here's my thing that I want to log, and it is, and then you say dollar sign, curly bracket, the thing that you want to log, and then you end the curly bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the syntax that you use to insert data from the program um, or from the environment into the logs. Um, one of the cases that they use to like really demonstrate this is you do the java version is dollar sign curly bracket java colon version and curly bracket and then that when it goes out to the log says the java version is java 1.7.0x or whatever Mm -hmm. um and so that's where that's useful is because on every computer you're running on it might be a slightly different java version and you want to be able to Put that in so you can think critically about what's going on here and why it's happening. Oh, there was a particular bug in this version of Java, so just update Java and you won't have that issue anymore. So in just in that case, unlike the Google uh, ad server, 
where presumably Google controls what version of Java they're running, if they're running Java at all, which seems a little uh-huh. bit unlike, unlikely. Um, you, in this case, you have made a piece of software and you put it, you, you know, you distributed it somehow and it's on someone else's computer, mm-hmm. a computer you don't have access to all the, all the, uh, you can't control all the code running on the computer because uh, they just might have a different version of Java installed. They might have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, they might have deleted this helper file by accident. And in this case, it would be sending all this data back to a logging server. Right. Or it could log it all to a file and then you say, hey, if you're having issues, grab the file from user slash Java logs and send it to us and we can process it that way. Right. So that's really good and that's really cool. And if you build a string intentionally to contain this dollar sign curly braces syntax um, in your logging, then you can put in additional information that you want. Sometimes, even though it is not recommended, it's very easy to take a string in from the user. Let's say the user types in their username and their password, and then they send it to your server. It would be really easy to just take the the string. A string is a series of letters and numbers and different characters. Uh, it's a text field. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easy to take that text field and just pop it right into your logger and say, boom, whatever your username is. And strings are, in particular, are interesting in this context because... Because they are unlike a, let's say, an integer, um, which is just a, it is a type of information that the computer, both strings and integers are types of information that uh, your computer can process at that level. Um, You know, an integer takes up this many bits uh, and has like a maximum value of this and a minimum value of this. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And in particular, a user usually, and I'm saying usually just as like a hedge because I'm not really sure, I would like to say that they can never just type in an integer. But I'm going to say usually because I'm not entirely sure that's true. Into your program, that is. Mm -hmm. They can type in a string, and that string will be processed verbatim, I suppose. Whereas if you were... If I wanted to know Zach's age, uh, I would say, what's your age? And then Zach would type in his age, and that would give my software that number as a string. So I get the mm-hmm. two and the three character. Right. Which is, has a ASCII code and Unicode code, and uh, from there I can translate that into an integer and let's start doing math on it and stuff well if zach was born in well if zach is 23 then i can know uh what year he was born that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but i can't do that with with a string so if you're going to put a string just in your logging file it is purely whatever the user typed in right which can be any character. Uh-huh. And one of those characters could be, uh, you know, a, a series of those characters could be 
Java version is dollar sign curly brace Java colon version and curly brace. And now you aren't logging the username to your your logs with your logging library because the logging library takes a string and it looks for this particular pattern. And when it sees that pattern, it does something with it. Um, and in this case, it just figures out the Java version. And so my username is the Java version is dollar sign curly brace whatever. And the logging library logs username is Java version 1.7.0. So in other words, what the user typed in and what gets logged is different information or right. different uh, is a different literal string. Right. Which is not probably when the person wrote the program, what they were imagining would happen. Right. They were thinking every time they put their username in here, it will log the username. And they tried all the usernames. They tried Bob and Tom and Jerry. And they said, okay, that's good. That's all the usernames. So the thing is, the dollar sign curly brace, uh, you could write something to the logs. Maybe you could do dollar sign curly brace and then get an environment variable and figure out what operating system the server is running on. Or I think there is maybe a way that you can just grab arbitrary bytes if you do something very wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, but like definitely you can get environment variables using this dollar sign curly brace thing um, and log that to the logs. Um, but probably you're not looking at the logs, so what does it matter, right? If you're giving environment variables from your own computer where you control the logs, then so what? You set those environment variables. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you can do with the curly brace syntax is execute JNDI lookups. Now it's time for me to scroll to the giant section of my notes where I investigate what JNDI is all about. So a JNDI, uh, JNDI stands for the Java Naming and Directory Interface. Um, Java's documentation is bad and I don't like it, um, but I was able to get out of it that uh, the point of the naming and directory interface is that you give it a name and they use the term name to be extraordinarily broad. It might be a key for a key value pair, right? You give it the name, you get the key, and now you get a result out. Uh, it might be a URL. You give it HTTP colon slash slash whatever, and it transforms that name into an object. There is LDAP is the Lightweight direct Directory Access Protocol, which is just a standardized protocol um, that you can use uh, in a lot of different systems um, to specify a particular place, a particular place within a directory, uh, within a folder structure um, using LDAP. So there are two particular JNDI cases that we want to think about in the context of Log4Shell. And those are RMI, Remote Method Invocation, and LDAP. Remote Method in Invocation um, is a particular way that you can configure a server to have a Java object. A Jobject. <laughs> An object is just a way to collect some information and some activities you can do with that information uh yeah uh, i think i'd add that like it is less important what it does 
for the computer and more important for the programmer. It is a it is a a building block that you can build upon that you can build with build upon. Right. And so yeah, it's a way to organize thoughts. Um and sometimes it also is a way to uh implement particular bits of security. You can say this is uh, what happens inside of this object is secret and all you can do is say give me an answer and it'll do a bunch of secret stuff and then give you an answer in what situation would you not trust another part of the program um i think a pretty common case for that is libraries java is probably not super prevalent with this but there are definitely a lot of c and c plus plus libraries um that are designed to have a bunch of proprietary information on the inside, and they just tell you how to talk to them. Interesting. I suppose that makes sense. The use case I thought of while you were talking was um, if you have a library or something and you have code that you want to make sure runs in a particular order, otherwise something might break, or mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe you don't want people messing around with it, the promise of the code is that it will work in a certain way. Yeah, I'm thinking like a a a safety guard on a on a saw or something. Like uh it's there so that you don't cut your hand off. Yeah. Um that is another use case where like there's nothing secret about it, but like just we want to make it difficult for you to cut your own hand off. Uh-huh. Don't mess with this too much. Like um in Java, the actual implementation of string is yeah. pretty locked down because you don't want somebody to be modifying strings because that takes a generally insecure thing and makes it even more insecure. Mm-hmm. So RMI, uh, Remote Method Invocation, is a particular way that Java can interact with a server. And... The workflow is you go to this RMI server and you say, uh, please give me this object, you know, object one, two, three, four. I don't know what the use case of it is exactly, but okay. uh, <laughs> this is a thing you can do, you know? Yeah. Sometimes people just build infrastructure for no particular reason. Yeah. This may um, or may I... not be a case for that. <laughs> I think a lot of important decisions about Java were made right when a lot of people were getting access to the internet. Mm. And so there was a lot of promise of what is coding going to look like in a world where everything is connected to the internet. Everything is so connected to the internet that even our objects are connected to the internet. Um, And so RMI uh, will give you the shape of a class, this stub class um and it just knows what server to call to execute its methods so it's an add space class and it knows that it's between you know 100 by 200 and 200 by 400 and that's the range of sizes that it can fill in and then you say i want to embiggen it and what happens is it goes and it sends the embiggen message to the server and the server thinks about it and it comes back and it says, okay, you are now 200 by 400 to 400 by 800. Mm-hmm. 
and you don't get to know what it did. Obviously, you can look at that and say it multiplied everything by two. Um, but it could do a bunch of complex secret things over on the server, come back, and now this object has a new value. Um, so it doesn't have any code of its own to run. Um, all of the actions that you can do with this object um, are actions that happen on the server. And it just tells you what the result is. Mm-hmm. There's also... LDAP, which is the lightweight, lightweight directory access protocol. There is a way that you can use um, LDAP to store Java objects. Uh, there's serialization involved. You serialize this object. So you take the object and you figure out what all of its components are. Um, this add has a minimum size and a maximum size and a uh, how much are we willing to bid and whatever the values are and you say okay minimum size is 100 and maximum size is 200 and how much are we willing to bid is 0.5 cents um and all of that just gets written out in a way that you know how to read it back in so in the future when you need to know about that ad you can deserialize it Mm -hmm. um into an object that looks just like the object you just had i think of this as like uh taking I don't have a, you take a thing and then you melt it down into a, into a soup. And then Mm -hmm. you know how to put the soup back into the thing. Maybe you have a mold or something. Uh Uh-huh. That's a a way to visualize that sort of process. Yeah. But you can't do anything with the soup is the point. Right. But the soup is smaller. The soup is smaller. The soup is a lot easier to move around. And yeah. So, or maybe like a zip file. Uh huh. <laughs> you're com- you're making it smaller, and you're making it easier to send around. So those are two things that you can do with JNDI. So Java also has this thing. <sighs> Java has a lot of things. Java also has this thing called the URL class loader. It is a Java object that you give a URL. And it goes to that URL, and it opens up the jar file that you put at that URL, and then it runs it like it's code that you trust. That's the URL class loader. You know, you know. Okay, so, uh, spoilers here. (laughs) Spoilers for Zach's topic, but I, I need to say this. Usually... When you're doing an injection attack like this, <laughs> you have they to make like... make it hard for you. Yeah, right. It's like you have to first figure out the syntax that they're using because they could be using this type of uh, string um, if they're not sanitizing the string or if they're only sanitizing it this one way and mm-hmm. all this. So if you can actually get it to the point where it can run certain types of code... Sometimes, like, usually it's not this easy. You have to, like, once you can get it to run code, if you can get it to say hello world or something, then you have to write a virus or whatever you're going to do. And then you have to get the the machine to compile the code you just wrote. <laughs> and uh-huh. then you have to get it to run that code that it just compiled. <laughs> And usually there's, like, security checks that you have to bypass and, like, uh, you have to run this or that as an admin. 
Um, but now it seems like you can just uh, type in and it's it's seeming like you can just type in a URL and then boom, uh, Java is being executed. <laughs> so that's a thing that just the URL class loader does. And that's not explicitly part of JNDI. Um, it is utilized by JNDI sometimes. What times, you might be asking. Mm-hmm. Um, so with both the LDAP and RMI, um, you go, you say, hey, give me an object, and they just give you an object back. You're not like loading a class to create that object um, f- from them. You're creating that object into a, a shape that you already know. But the way that you create that object um, in a lot of object-oriented programming languages, there's such a thing as a factory which is an object that makes more objects. And usually when you have a factory, you just have a single factory. You have an add factory. And that right. takes in a bunch of data, a bunch of maybe serialized add data, and it turns that into an add object. And maybe it does that in a way that's non-standard. And so you need to load that from somewhere else. So what can happen is you say, hey, JNDI, load this thing, load this LDAP thing, and it goes to the LDAP server, and the LDAP server says, oh yeah, here's the object, and just so you know, the factory for this object, you've got to go over here and grab it. And it goes, oh, okay, sounds good. And then it grabs the URL class loader, and it gives the URL class loader that URL that you just gave it, and now um, it's constructing that factory so that it can construct the thing that you just gave it, right, into Mm -hmm. an object. But... Once you have the factory being constructed, there's no guide, uh, there's no limit on what that factory can do as part of construction, right? Maybe it needs to go um, download every single thing on virus.net um, <laughs> as part of constructing this this ad object. I don't know. Yeah, it's um, not a way to tell if something is a virus or not once it's already running. Right. Or like a computer can't at least. Right. Um, and there's no like, okay, a factory can only do this or that kind of thing because there's a million different things that a factory might need to do that might be totally valid. Right. Um, and most of the time you just use factories that you trust and then whatever. Uh, but not, not with JNDI. Yeah. There's like, there is a lot of trust assumed there. They are assuming that you're not going to allow just anybody to tell you any url mm-hmm. so the good thing is um that actually only works pre jdk 8 we're on jdk like 11 or 12 or 17 or something now they changed their numbers at some point um so that is java development kit it's just the version of java that you're running on um so before this particular version of java uh you say load this jndi thing it goes to the server it grabs the JNDI result. It says, oh, to make this JNDI result, I need this factory. It goes, it grabs the factory, it comes back, um, and it uses that factory to create the object. Mm-hmm. Um, but before it does that, you write whatever you want in the factory, and the factory blows up the moon, whatever. Post-JDK8, uh, you cannot run a factory from a URL. Many people have said this is probably a good idea. However, what you can do 
Um, because you might still need a factory, is you can specify an object factory in your JNDI response. You can say, by the way, use the object factory that you've got near you, um, whatever. Uh, maybe you want to use bean factory. That's a particular object factory you could use. And that's just something that's already on the computer that you're running on. The malicious server, and then there's the server you're trying to attack. Right. Um, the object factory needs to exist so on somewhere on the server you're trying to attack. So you say, oh, you don't, you can't use this one. I've got such a great factory over here. You really should try it. But I guess if you don't want to just go around clicking on URLs, uh, you can use this object factory uh, that you've got already. See, it's, it's wonderful. You trust it, um, this object factory. And that's just any class that implements I object factory or whatever the thing is. Mm -hmm. um, and so it conforms to a particular specification, right? It takes a particular amount of information and it returns an expected result. That's what I mean when I say implements. It, it does a thing that you expect um, in a particular way. So Apache are the folks who, who make uh, Log4J and they also make a bunch of other Java software, including Tomcat, I believe it's called. And Tomcat includes um, the Bean Factory. And so Bean Factory takes a class reference and um, from JNDI, and it calls initializers for each property. Um, and because somebody built it trying to solve a problem and not trying to be totally invulnerable to every single way that something might go wrong, um, you are able to manually set the name of the initializer. So um, usually if you've got a variable minimum size um, and that's part of this add object and you want to set the minimum size, you would call set minimum size and now that's what minimum size is. But sometimes you don't call it set minimum size. Sometimes you call it adjust minimum size for whatever reason. Sure. Um, and so it's possible to set the name of this initializer that you want. I have a Liz question, actually. Yeah. My understanding of the word initializer is that it is... I might be confusing it with constructor. It's... Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so in the context of this code, when they're using the word initializer, um, they are talking about the thing that sets the initial value of this variable. Oh, okay. Of course. Sure. Because um, the factory is doing the initialization of the whole thing. And so then as part of that, it needs to initialize each variable. Okay. I've, I got it. Um, you also, because it's initializing the variable, uh, maybe you want to set the, maybe you want to initialize um, the minimum size to 100. And so you send 100 and you say adjust minimum size. Mm -hmm. And so now it adjusts the minimum size to 100, and now that variable is initialized. The thing is, it doesn't have to be an object that looks like what you're sending them. You can just send them any old object reference. You can say, this is a string, and use the string initializer, and then it'll go, there are no string initializers. Okay, whatever. But you can choose whatever class you want and run a single method on that class whatever method you want and you choose the argument 
Okay. Java has a function called elprocessor.eval, which runs an expression in the Java expression language format, which is a string. So you, you say be able to do that. <laughs> Just Jared, this is the part where normally if you were going to do an injection, this is the method you would use to say, Hey, run this arbitrary code, please. Right. So you just say, I'm initializing a class of EL processor and I'm setting X uh, and the set X method isn't actually set X, it's eval. And then the thing that I'm setting X to is string of malicious code. Somehow, in even the most recent versions of Java, uh, if you can manage to hand somebody a JNDI string and they look it up, they can, you can direct them to a server that tells them to either fetch malicious code from your server mm-hmm. or run malicious code using a factory on their server. Presuming they've got this bean factory installed, which not everything does, um, but they could, or they could have another equally vulnerable factory sitting around that you can use. Right. It's a little less universal of a problem, but it's still a problem. Yeah, the it would I would say that just for I think for context it it's it would be weird for the people who made Bean Factory to be thinking, what if a user <laughs> like what if a what if you know, what if a programmer let a user run or, you know, create, is it, I don't know the, the verbiage for JNDIs, um, but it would be weird for someone to let a user set their own uh, initializer names. Mm-hmm. Like that is a thing that hap- is happening only at a development level. And if you're going to develop something, you're not going to purposefully make that thing a virus. Right. (laughs) I'm not saying that they shouldn't have have done that, you know? I'm not saying that they shouldn't have said, okay, let's, at least for this one method, this one method that is very well known to not have anything good, any good things associated with it, let's just make sure that the initializer name is not this. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that would be... I would applaud them if they thought of that. Uh huh. So that is kind of the headspace that the Bean Factory people are in, and likely the JNDI people. Right. Um. And so we've known since 2019 that if somebody gets custom data into a JNDI lookup, that could cause problems for you. Mm-hmm. They could point you to a server. And the whole idea with JNDI is you're going looking for an object that you want to use and trust. However, uh, until very recently, nobody put together, um, at least nobody put together and said out loud that you could use um, a specifically crafted string to target the logging library and get remote code execution. So why does Apache Log4j let you do JNDI lookups? 
Why? Why is that a thing that you need to do in your logging library? I don't know. I'd, you can find the place where somebody asks for it, right? They've just got a Jira. It's just the Apache Jira. And you can just look at the log4j and look at the thing that happened in 2013. And the guy saying, or the, you know, whoever, um, somebody saying, hey, I need JNDI to do this thing. What even is it? Give me a second. To, I'm just going to read this verbatim. Go for um, it. I'd like to use routing appender. Uh, to put all the logs from the same web application context in a log file. And I want to use JNDI resource lookup to determine the target route similarly to the JNDI context selector of logback3. It's just a thing. Right. Like a pretty weird use case. They want to skip doing some other extra work and JNDI would make it faster and more um, clear. And yeah, that's the reason. Somebody asked for it, so they put it in. Right. And so the person asked for it, and then they said, here's my implementation of it. Um, oh, they even did it for them. Yeah. How thoughtful. And they said, you know, the folks who are in charge of Log4j, the two of them, um, <laughs> said, yeah, cool, thanks for doing some extra work. A small team. Yeah. Um, thanks for doing some extra work. And so in 2013, since 2013, there has been a, an option to use JNDI from the curly, curly braces in a log4j string. Mm-hmm. Just because this guy, Wunsan Ko, needed it and probably plenty of other people have used it since. I still can't fathom what for, um, but it's not, you know, doesn't mean there's no valid use case. Right. And so the thing that happened is that Java set up in this environment and they said, okay, you've got URL class loader, but nobody's just going to let a user put a thing into URL class loader, right? So we're pretty secure there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a couple ways that you could get something that wasn't a developer intentionally writing URL class loader from this place that I know of that whatever, we're looking for plugins here or something. I think... Another way to think about it is like if the user can, the thought was probably something along the lines of if a user can do this, then they can probably write arbitrary code anyway. Right. Yeah. And so mostly you're just not going to let the user get at it. Um, And there are a couple ways that it gets used. And it's, you know, one, two, three, there's three little holes where maybe you could get through. And then uh, over time, Java looked at it and they said, okay, wait, this way doesn't work if you try and use a factory and that that's no longer good anymore. And so they closed up one of the holes and then they put another shell around it um, to try and keep it. So there's only, you know, you get in this way from JNDI and then you go all the way around. And like, if you do exactly the wrong thing, you can get from JNDI to the URL class uh, loader. Um, and then at some point they said, no, you just aren't allowed to do that. You can't go between the two. And so then folks just found another hole. Um, and the thing is software is full of like holes that then we wrap because the holes are there on purpose, right? URL class loader serves a purpose for somebody, I guess. Yeah. You need to interface with software for it to be useful. Right. And interfacing with software is how we get software vulnerabilities. That's just 
the way it is. But this particular one lets you <laughs> format a string for one of the, like, for the longest time, it was the only Java logging library, um, or maybe the only third-party Java logging library. And so anything that's using this, if you format this string and they log this string directly, um, you set off this domino effect where you go look over here for some information and then that tells you to go look over there and now you're looking over there and you put it in the wrong place, you trust the wrong thing, and now something bad has happened. And I think it's just fascinating to think about cases where this would be useful. (laughs) So... Uh, just, I, I can imagine a lot of ways that, like, uh, I guess mostly for Jared, what would be the things you need to do or maybe not do as a developer to leave your your software vulnerable to this? There's a, a handful. Uh, one of them is upgrade from Java 1.8. Um, and so then you don't have the two paths where either they're sending you to grab a bad factory or they're running weird code on a factory you already have. They only have the one path. Um, another one would be to not have used log4j in a way that you put raw mm. strings. I'm asking the opposite, I think. I want to know like how easy it would be to accidentally leave yourself open to this today or three weeks ago three weeks ago oh super easy that's i i have probably written code in a different logging library that would have been vulnerable to this Mm -hmm. if it had been log4j yeah and i'm just kind of wondering like what are the steps or not the steps but what are the things that you that need to happen just to sum up i suppose that need to happen that need to not happen for this to work Uh uh-huh so you take a user string of some sort one of the things i didn't get to is that a lot of people just log http headers um directly they just go oh okay the user agent we just want to write down what the user agent was here Mm -hmm. um and you can customize that instead of saying I'm using Chrome. You can say, I'm using JNDI colon, go download my bad code.com. Um, and so if in any case, anywhere that there's user input or input from a system that is not your system, right? you log that thing directly. As opposed to? Uh, logging it indirectly. There are some ways that you can say, take the variable that exists out here and say user agent colon grab the variable from over there grab whatever the user agent is and then i am pretty sure in most sane libraries and probably log4j um it will just grab that verbatim it won't try and interpret it any further Mm -hmm. right um because you're saying a little more explicitly, this is something I don't trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, something, if you're familiar with development a little bit, I think that would be comparable to prepared statements in SQL. Probably. Just don't do any processing for this string. I already have the variable, the non, 
you say, this is what I would like to do. And you say, like, put a question mark in a spot and say, this is the input. I want you to put the input there and don't do anything else. Ah, okay. That's a That's prepared smart. statement. Uh-huh. Um, would it make sense to sanitize it? I don't think it would. Um, You can do like a d- basic check and say, okay, if it starts with dollar sign squiggly bracket JNDI, um, then don't trust it. But what if they start it with hello dollar sign squiggly bracket JNDI? Or in fact, uh, you can do dollar sign squiggly bracket dollar sign squiggly bracket lower colon J and squiggly bracket NDI colon. And so then it'll process the lower J. Now you'll have a lowercase J and that becomes part of dollar sign squiggly bracket J and DI colon go down load by bad code. Right. So it would be tough to sanitize it. Right. The thing that you really want to do is say, this is not trusted. This is not a trusted string and don't try and interpret it. Right. Um, if you're not doing that, if you are trusting a string, then that sets off the dominoes, right? It sets off, okay, we're going to go to the server, trust whatever the server is giving us, because that's just how JNDI is designed, is to trust whatever the server is giving us, um, and turn that into a thing that we're going to run, and then you run that, and you cause yourself some problems. All right. So it's really, really easy to get this wrong, or it was yeah three weeks ago. Right the the part of the cascade that a, a normal developer who isn't working at Oracle writing Java and who isn't working at Apache writing Log4j, um, if you're not one of those people, the part that you have to screw up is really small and really likely. <laughs> so. Go update your libraries. You can literally just go in everywhere that JN, that log4j is used and delete the JNDI jar or class. You can just delete the JNDI class and now there's nothing there to process a JNDI message and it errors out in that particular log and then whatever. Probably you're not using JNDI anyway. Um, And the rest of your code keeps running. I love things that are easy fixes because... uh... One gets to feel superior when uh, they go and fix it. I did a security. Good job, me. Uh-huh. Right. That's security. That's the good stuff. Right there. Me clicking the, the button on Dependabot. That's the good stuff. And now, a PSA from the Worrying Bugs and Darius C. Slack from the Apache Jira. Six days ago. Might I recommend you make this little feature default to off? People must have forgotten about SQL injection. The world is burning now. This has been a PSA from the Worrying Bugs and Darius Seaslack. Jared, if you are Darius Seaslack and you would like <laughs> to complain about us broadcasting your name on our podcast. Or if you would like to get me eating some crom chaws um you can reach out and let me know about it on twitter i'm at 